Why, howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. That kind of surprised you, didn't it? I've never done a howdy to start the show. But anyway, yeah, we're trying to mix it up a little bit. And I'm C.R. Wiley, and I live in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in uh, the greater Portland area. And I've written a bunch of stuff. And my book, my book on Tom Bombadil is just days away from being released. And I'm pretty excited about that. We'll talk about that more another time. But why don't we go ahead and go around the horn and introduce ourselves. And Glenn, why don't you uh, why don't you go next and then we'll go to Tom. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and probably a few other things I'm forgetting. And I am currently in transition from Connecticut to Indiana, and we're recording this, uh, I'm recording my part of this from an undisclosed location somewhere near where I'm going to end up living. (laughs) All right. That's a way to keep it nice and vague there, Glenn. Okay. (laughs) All right, Tom. (laughs) I wish I could have an undisclosed location. I'm in uh, Connecticut, and it's uh, I don't I don't even think I don't even know what to list that as a beautiful place, but uh, disastrously governed. <laughs> um, I'm Tom right. Price, uh, <laughs> a, uh, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I also teach uh, philosophy, philosophy, religion, um, and a variety of other things. Um, I am currently working on a book on Christian faith and technology, which is taking shape and form, which will be getting into a lot of moral theology and systematic theology and delving into philosophical issues as they, you know, they engage um, this topic. And I believe this po- uh, podcast will come out before the start date, because there's a, an extended start date to a class I'm teaching at the University of Fight, Laugh, Feast on Christian faith and technology. And it's going to be getting into some fascinating things. And so there's still time. Sign up. Uh, you want to be there. So um, and so today's topic is I don't know if I can roll right in with it, but it's, it's going to be something um, that will be addressed in it in more depth. Um, it's going to be sort of technology. Um Wisdom and virtue, technology, wisdom and virtue, and so well, before, uh, I guess it's a good. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Before you do jump into the subject of the day, I did want to say uh, to the folks who are in the Pacific Northwest and are looking forward to our tour, uh, this show will come out just a couple of weeks before our uh, series of uh, of live podcast recordings here in the Pacific Northwest. So. Uh, the, uh, the locations are firming up, and uh, I can say uh, this, uh, the, uh, the weekend of the 30th, 31st, we're going to be in the Portland area. We're going to be at the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, and we're going to be at some pubs in the, that area on Saturday. Then Glenn and Tom are both going to be at Westminster Presbyterian Church in the morning. Uh, Glenn will be preaching, and Tom will be uh teaching in the in the adults uh, Bible study hour. And then in the evening, we will be heading down to Benton or Oregon City, not Ben, but Oregon City uh, to a church uh, that is located there, RCC. And we're looking forward to that. Glenn is going to be delivering a lecture and uh, we're going to be doing a podcast there as well. And it looks like it's going to be a great night. There are going to be people dressing up like uh, uh, characters from the Reformation. This is this is uh, Reformed Halloween. I don't know if people <laughs> made those connections, but basically, uh, you get to dress up like Martin Luther and scare people. <laughs> but the, the, we'll be doing that. Then we'll be head, we'll be heading up to uh, to the Seattle area for a couple of shows, uh, and uh, we're looking forward to being there. And then we'll be over in our in, in Moscow to spend some time with some friends. Uh, Glenn will be delivering a lecture up in the. Uh, in the Seattle area, Tom will be delivering a lecture up in Moscow for the folks there at NSA, New St. Andrews College. Anyway, all the details will soon appear on the uh, podcast website, and you'll be able to uh, note, you know, all of the all of those details, and hopefully, be able to come to those shows or, or at least one or two of them. So, enough of that. So, let's jump into the subject of the day, Tom. You are the man. You are the man with the with the subject okay. of the day. 
<laughs> Before that, I did want to say that dressing up like Martin Luther in the Pacific Northwest would probably scare a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, so um, one of the things that kind of got me thinking about the issue I'm going to talk about today was um, a class I was teaching just a few days ago. Um, where I'd given uh, an assignment and I got a lot of um, the assignments back and there were missing answers. Um, People answered four of the questions. They didn't even answer the fifth question. And it was clearly in the email. And uh, similarly, when I was meeting with a class, um, a lot of the young students, I was going over certain things and they had clearly missed some of the most important steps in the assignment, which were listed one by one in an email. And and we started to have a little conversation about how people actually are reading their emails or are they reading their emails? One of the things that is showing up more and more as I teach more and more um, is, is this kind of awareness of how inattentive Students are becoming, people are becoming to, to details that, that matter, um, not simply um, incidental things or, or things that don't matter, but things that are important, core parts of an assignment for your education, for example. Um, I imagine people in other areas and professions are run into this all the time, and I find myself doing it a lot of times, brushing quickly through a note, a text, an email, or even a form or a document where I'm just missing a lot of, of the, the key things said. Um, and, and so I was kind of pondering some things about, you know, in relationship to technology and, and the, the variety of tasks we now do um, because we can do more things at once in the changes that that kind of really brings into our world and it got me thinking about how just on everyday levels like that, technology is, is changing things for us, and we're not catching up with technology. I mean, it's, it's getting more a hold of us than we are getting a hold on that. And so I think one of the things I, I got to thinking about is how is it, first of all, as, as Christians trying to live out our faith and, and be uh, attentive to reality, reality and vigilant in what we do, how is it that we, you know, are going to be able to navigate these constant changes that technology is bringing about, Um, but also something we contribute to the culture in terms of from the riches of our faith and its wisdom traditions um, of of kind of how the virtues and wisdom um, can apply in these cases so that we don't get taken over by these technologies, but actually can use them in a way of service rather than them basically exploiting and dominating us. So that's kind of the, the, the theme is kind of technology, wisdom, and virtue. Um, there was a book that came out recently, and I don't know the author, well, 2016, that's recent for me. Um, it's written by a professor of philosophy, I think, on the, we- uh, on the West Coast in California, Shannon Valor. And the book is called Technology and the Virtues, A Philosophical Guide to a Future Worth Wanting. Um, and it is written more from a, a kind of pagan and um, kind of virtue position, um, deals with the classic virtues um, and and. Um, you know, Buddhist ethics and some things like that. So it's kind of, it's kind of uh, drawing off of a variety of traditions, but at least it takes a first step in the direction of trying to actually bring ethical seriousness to serious things that are, that are impacting us. Um, And it really covers a lot of ground, though not every part of the book is in the kind of depth you would want it to be. Um, You have chapters like um, learning from um, virtue traditions, cultivating the techno-moral self. There's a lot of kind of, you know, new language here. Um, But but going through kind of uh, the wisdom section, they're talking about a taxonomy taxonomy of techno-moral virtues, honesty, respecting truth, self-control, justice, 
courage, empathy. So taking a lot of the classic virtues and bringing their, their, their wealth to the conversation. Um, so I just kind of, I think, uh, just launch maybe as just a large topic and then we can narrow it down. Um, what is the significance that you're finding, the challenges of technology, but also the wisdom that we have from the Christian intellectual tradition and, of course, the biblical faith to actually begin bringing something into this, uh, this uh, right. well-needed need. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think uh, the, the thing that immediately occurs to me is the, the revival of interest in virtue, for example, and uh, yeah. how welcome that should be. Um, you know, I was reminded while I was reading Christopher Lash and his book, uh, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, that for um, many thinkers in the modern period, the goal was to create a political environment in which virtue wasn't necessary. So, you know, Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, yes. is, you know, addressing that theme. I, I, I think it's lost on a lot of folks that we actually have uh, pretty serious people who thought we didn't we didn't really need a world in where we, um, you know, trained people in honesty. <laughs> we, we thought that, yeah. you know, the, the, the checks and balances of, of you know, a uh, well-managed uh, government and an administrative state would be able to keep things in line. But what I think we've discovered is yeah. that the human human heart is able to sort of, well, uh, manipulate and corrupt anything. And, and even these attempts to sort of, well, use uh, vice to serve public good, you know, like we see with yeah. the, with the so Mandeville's, you know, myth of the bees, if, if I'm remembering correctly, the the idea or the 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 note that you know I think it was what what was it? Uh, oh, Adam Smith and his his quip. I think it was him who said that you know the baker doesn't bake bread because he wants to give the world bread. He makes bread essentially to serve his own self interest and you know to make <laughs> make a living. You know, so the the idea is that we can. Uh, you know, have a more, I guess, uh, reliable set of outcomes if we just sort of accommodate or sort of, uh, I guess, acquiesce to the fact that people behave selfishly. And what we what we need to do is create a world in which there are enough checks and balances that that are mutual suspicion <laughs> and our and our tendencies to be selfish <laughs> yeah. keep each other in line <laughs> and that would be enough but but uh i, th- I think i think well, people you know, have lost faith in this <laughs> yeah yeah th- this goes back to several things we've talked about before um you know i uh we had an episode on heroes the utter loss of the concept of the heroic in our society um the the um so hermeneutics of suspicion, another one of our shows. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of these kinds of things. And I'd just like to point out that for your average person, virtue is probably an old-fashioned word that they don't really use or think about much. Yeah. We've really functionally lost the entire concept of virtue. I used to use it when I was talking about uh, the zero-sum game in critical theory, um, that virtue is a zero-sum game. You lose virtue by being in the oppressor class. That means you gain virtue by being in the oppressed class. But I've had to, had to drop that language because people don't really get it. So I've switched to moral authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's really the closest thing that I can get to this idea of virtue. Uh, I think we've completely lost the idea. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's true. And you, you begin to see it. I mean, I, I see it increasingly in everyday ways. I mean, you go to the grocery store, for example, in, in, in increasing rudeness and impatience between people for small things, getting parking spaces, um, having to, if you work at a supermarket or a store and having to pay attention to a customer asking a question, there's a certain attitude and pride now to, to even ask someone a question is to bother them and irritate. And so what you see is this kind of um, what used to be taken for granted is the sort of uh, a shared societal set of aims and goods that they would um, 
habituate um, and develop um, character in relationship to has just, you know, as Chris was saying, has kind of uh, not been something that has been an aim of the society and you're seeing the repercussions. And so what, you know, more and more state power or more and more reinforcements to, to, to limit that the vices that begin to develop um, and, and I think technology plays into this because it, it, it starts to become almost another means of, of control, in one sense, creating vice, but also in another, controlling, controlling um, and becoming almost surveillance-like in other ways. And so, yeah, we've, we've lost this notion of virtue. And then I think even in, um, in especially in, in Protestant thinking and e- even in some, t- some of the reform lines, there became an allergy to uh, virtue because they thought of it as some kind of human work contributing to salvation. Um, they didn't, they, they, they kind of have an oppositional understanding between, um, you know, supernature and nature and these somehow clash rather than, than um, um, complement. Um, and so because of that, there, there was much more a kind of just of emphasis on divine command, but without, without the kind the fact that the command is forming and shaping, right? Uh, it, okay. it is a command that has a shape and an enactment around it. Um, you know, do this. <laughs> what happens there? You're okay. doing something. And what happens when you obey? You form, <laughs> right? And you right. become. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's another really just sort of generally important issue that we, I mean, I'm thinking about it in terms of the way we raise kids. You know, we give them rules and say, don't do this or do that, and we never give them reasons. And so when they get to college or something like that and they find the rules being challenged, they have no way to fall, they have nothing to fall back on. It It just looks and sounds arbitrary. And as a result, 80% of them or so uh, end up losing their faith in college. Related to to the the point you were making earlier about technology and control, Tom, I saw something fascinating out of Europe. Uh, Right now, it's a trend in Europe to use facial makeup in order to thwart facial recognition technology. And um, that is remarkable for a range of reasons. But one of the things that that came out in the course of... um, you know, my looking into this is that apparently it's it's uh, it's presumed that the, this that this technology has a right, or the people who create the technology have a right to recognize you, and that uh, this uh, act of, of of using facial makeup to thwart the AI facial recognition technology is uh, considered illegal. And I, I, I had a hard time believing that was the case, but, I, but I've been told that it is the case. I'm not sure how that all works. Maybe there's a listener out there who will correct me. But uh, getting back to your point, when we lose our ability to operate, you know, sort of on a basis of trust, because we believe that the virtues have been inculcated broadly in our society, we, we fall back upon mechanisms that we can use to control people, uh, and, we, and we need the state to do that because the state's the only um, actor that has the power and the, the, the breadth of reach to, to make that so. Uh, and we, so we, we lose the kind of the spontaneity and the genuineness that can, can be you know, at work when people are just simply doing what comes by second nature, like you could say, because they've been educated to behave in certain ways and like working in the living, you know, uh, you know, behaving in those ways. Anyway, some thoughts on technology, how it affects virtue. In this case, technology yeah. in terms of AI uh, in order to, used in order to control a population because people can't be trusted anymore, uh, giving birth to an even nut, a new layer of deception <laughs> as people try to alter yes. their appearance yeah. in order to thwart the AI. <laughs> that, well, that's right. And, and these are, these are um, I think, some of the interesting um, and rapidly changing things, um, again, that we're having to catch up with, um, especially those of us. I mean, we've like, you know, I mean, we've seen technology change dramatically in our lifetime. And yet we're seeing it. I, I'm seeing it um, even increase in terms of 
um, the amount of challenges and the amount of uh, new technologies. Um, but I, you know, you think even back down to just the question of um, the the virtues around learning and education, um, the way in which we become more dependent on technology for things remembered. Um, for example, our memory um, or the calculator not doing a math problem out and things like that is is there we become dependent on these tools, which of course they're they're meant to be in some way to enhance so that we can do different things or or more things or or things we can't do just you know on our own. But what we end up doing is hurting those aspects of things that we can do on our own. Um, and should be doing on our own, like remembering, um, you know, certain things, learning to memorize rather than say, oh, I can look that up if I need need to. Um, I, th- I think yesterday a lot of people probably couldn't remember, talking about memory, most of the people on their Facebook page. <laughs> when that went out, <laughs> they were at a loss for, for even a lot of the people that they thought they reconnected with. So they're, you know, um, I mean – I don't even, I, I have to admit, I don't even memorize people's phone numbers like I used to. I, I put them yeah. in the phone and that's it, you know? And then I thought, what happened? I, I lose my phone or not able to access. I really couldn't get in touch with a lot of people. Um, yeah. And so well, I'm not, mm-hmm, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would, I'd extend it beyond that in that I think social media is, as it's currently used, is a um, a real detriment to this entire idea of virtue because you know it's not only the atrophy atrophy of our abilities which is certainly very real there let me let yeah. me add one other thing i've said before i think on the show google makes you stupid yeah because in order to learn something you need to know something that you can associate it with and if you don't know facts if you don't have information in your head it becomes impossible to learn new information there are no hooks to hang it on but, but beyond that, looking at social media, values are formed in community. I would argue that virtues are also formed in community. Mm-hmm. But if you have a – most people don't my, – my suspicion is most people don't really know many of the people on their Facebook feeds. They just accept friend requests and all that kind of thing, which means that there is no real penalty for you if you're a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there's no real community there. In a real live living community where you're being with other people face to face, where you've got ongoing relationships, that kind of thing. If you're a jerk, there's a penalty attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's got consequences. Um, yeah. the, the trolling and things like that on Facebook, snide comments, attacks, cheap shots. Uh, insults, things like that, don't carry with them the same yeah. kind of penalty to you in your living community as the same kinds of things would carry if you were actually in contact with these people, if this was a genuine community for you. So I think that that contributes to a massive amount of rudeness and with it a that massive loss of virtue. Yes. You know, related to yeah. that, that, Glenn, is I think something that that we uh, we kind of assume to be the case that I think has a kind of romantic, almost Rousseauian <laughs> uh, origin, and that is... The, I don't know what authentic- you're going to say, but whatever it is, I don't like it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the, the idea is that if it's, if it's uh, uh, you know, an external authority or external uh, institution or an institution that, that is... Uh, requiring something of me or keeping me from something that that wells up spontaneously within me, then it, it's in some sense inhibiting me and altering my, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a reality that is, is keeping me from being me, pre- pre- preventing me from being free and authentic. Uh, whereas I think if we have our, our understanding of the virtues well-developed, we know that virtues uh, are things that actually uh, make us, uh, I guess, uh, sociable uh, and able to live with other people and, be- and uh, recognize that we are social animals, uh, to use you know, Aristotelian uh, language, and consequently uh, are actually ways that, that develop us 
uh, or means by which, uh, you know, these social institutions, these expectations, these, these norms, these are means by which uh, these virtues are, are encouraged and inculcated and, and developed and actually help to perfect us, um, you know, in, in, rather than inhibit us. But anyway, I'm sorry to cut you off there, Tom. No, no, I think the, the, all of that is, I think, very important to, to kind of what we're talking about. It's, it's that we see the part of the impingement, if you will, of, of technology in these advanced forms, social media, um, our increased dependency on things, our not having to develop even, you know, some kind of certain skills, but especially in the realm of, of our communicative and, and uh, moral um, aspects, um, we are seeing, we are, we're paying the price for it, I think, is what we're doing. And again, I mean, I, I, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is on one hand, I think we were, we were caught off guard by this notion that technology is neutral um, and it serves kind of neutral ends. Um, it's more, it's basically, sir, it, it's just an extension of kind of ourselves and we kind of see ourselves in a good light, you know? And so um, it, it allows me to expand my wants, my consumption, um, my interests, um, the, you know, the, the, the things that pertain to me. Um, and it allows, uh, it also allows me to be exploited in ways that I, I don't even realize. And I think this is right. This is one of those places at which wisdom, virtue, and um, the ability to discern becomes very important. Um, I think we're, we're learning just because of the increased uh, pressures of kind of big tech along with political power, um, how, how significant discernment is in relationship to these instruments, especially the way they bring information um, limit information and spread certain information. Um, and so, you know, how does a Christian, for example, orient themselves in a world in which they are constantly having to, to vigorously discern how to discern what's true or not? Um, yeah. I think that's, that yeah, the, requires, go, are you there, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of a few, yeah. um, works of fiction, uh, uh, one is, of course, is the Lord of the Rings. And in Lord of the Rings, we could say the ring is technology because, you know, it's power that can be used to achieve the ends of the wearer. But the paradox is, is that uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, intrinsically evil and bends the, the person. So as the person, you know, endeavors to bend others to his the wearer's will, uh, the, the, the wearer yeah. is, uh, in the process bent himself. Uh, and then, you know, sort of yeah. the, the solution, the only solution is the destruction of the ring. But another, another work yeah. of fiction that I think is helpful to think about is you remember the, you remember that television show, the prisoner, um, uh, that was, uh, I think it was in this late sixties that it came out and the quest was for information. Remember, uh, number six, I think was yeah. the number that was given to the character who was the, he was a he was a he was a, a spy, and he found himself. Um, he, he quit uh, the agency that he worked for in the, you know, the the British uh, government, uh, and uh, was abducted and finds himself uh, on an island uh, where he's subjected <laughs> to kind of a psychological torture in order to get information. They 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 believe he knows some things that they don't want him to know and they want to know the things that he knows. And so the, the whole gist of the, of this uh, sort of psyops that's, that's uh, you know, we you see on the, on the Island is that, and the last thing that comes to mind is uh Butlerian Jihad in Dune. I don't know if you guys, if, if you've read Dune, but uh, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the great, you know, as said, Frank Herbert uh, who wrote Dune, he, uh, he envisions a future, you know, tens, ten, maybe 10,000 years in the, uh, you know, uh, down the line in which uh, post, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, world in which uh, they live in the, in the you know, beyond a, uh, a huge, you know, war against artificial intelligence. And in that future, uh, the, the war is called the Butlerian Jihad. And in, in, in that 
in that jihad, uh, all thinking machines were destroyed. And now uh, you have this sort of advanced civilization that has found ways to sort of replace thinking machines, meaning computers. Uh, So human (laughs) beings, certain human human beings are trained to actually function in the ways that computers used to function so that we, you know, they don't (laughs) actually need, uh, you know, machine, machine, uh, you know, sort of intelligence. But anyway, some, some fascinating stuff that it's all wrestling with the stuff that you're talking about here, Tom. Well, that's right. And that notion of machine, I think, is the the big giveaway. I mean, that that mechanistic philosophy that drives still drives, even though it's it's bad philosophy, it, it drives the 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 understanding of technology and a lot of the sciences. Um, and because of that, I think that's that's part of what we we realize we're, we're almost being, you know, we're caught in the machine. <laughs> Um, we're, we, we are different than the machine, um, yet we're related to as if we're the machine, um, but machines are able to do <clears throat> amazing things. You know, think of the way algorithms work and, and the way in which our, our behaviors are constantly tracked and, and our purchases are buying our interests and, and, and the like, as you were talking earlier about our self-interests. Um, with with Adam Smith combined with this ability to to um, almost influence them by tracking them, um, you, what you have going on here, of course, is the classic issue of human beings have desires, <laughs> um, and they also have fallen desires. Um, and these desires, however fallen, are are made for ultimately, um, you know, communion with the eternal God, um, the triune God, and with each other. Um, and because of that, they are vulnerable to exploitation, but they are also able to not be exploited. And part of the means that we've been given, not only our, our natural reason, though fallen, and our natural ability to develop certain virtues, though fallen, but in sanctification and renewal, these things don't have to go the way of manipulation and exploitation. They actually can reorient us as a community, even during times in which technology is impinging from every direction. So I don't think the old things we have um, been given are things that need to be kind of pushed in the background, but actually brought to the foreground if we're going to be a counter community to the trends where technology is going. We talked before, I think, in an episode of curiosity in the way in which um, unknown knowledge um, which is naturally desired by us. We want to know things, um, but because of that, studiousness gets perverted into curiosity in the negative sense, and it starts to go into places that we have the power to go, but we don't have the permission to go. (laughs) And I think this is where that wisdom, um, the scripture-grounded wisdom, coupled with with the the wisdom of the churches trying to put that into different um, times and places is important. Um, I think of maybe one other way. Um, of course, we have the application of biblical truth to these issues, but a lot of direct biblical truth was addressing different occasions, most of which did not have any of this technology. Um, um, so how does it apply? Well, this is where the, the, the wisdom of the church's thinking about these things as it has confronted things becomes an important um, um, set of riches that we can draw from. It's not scripture, but it's aimed at applying scripture. And because of that, there's wisdom there. And, And then especially in relationship to the virtues and cultivating character and, um, and, and um, cultivating vigilance and discernment, and and also, you know, drawing upon wisdom. And I think wisdom is that connecting point there, is the connecting point of, of taking the biblical truth and, and putting it into new territory. Now, what do you think about uh, the speed of technology, Tom? You know, when, when we talk about uh, something like wisdom or something like a community, these uh, tend to be slow-moving uh, realities. In other words, yeah. they're not moving yeah. at light speed. They're not moving at the speed of Google. They're not moving at the speed of technological change. You know, I, I feel like um, remember, remember that was Alvin Toffler Future Shock, that book that was published in the eighties. 
Yeah. Um, it's ancient history now, <laughs> but, but it was uh, looking yeah, yeah. forward to, you know, this whole problem of how do you keep up with the, the, the speed at which technology, uh, you know, sort of uh, ch- is changing the world in which we live. So by the time you finally uh, have the wisdom to know, okay, um, that yeah. snide comment that I want to that I want that I want to leave on Facebook is not only going to harm the person that I'm directing it to, but it's going to harm me <laughs> in the process. Yeah. By the time then, at that point, uh, you know, we're we're almost post Facebook. I, I I wonder if this little crash that we experienced on Facebook uh, and Instagram here the, the other day isn't an indication that uh, we're looking at a post-Facebook future. We're, we're just, we've, we've finally gotten to a place, I think, where we say, okay, Facebook is a reality. It's kind of a utility, kind of like the electric company. We all have to kind of live with it from here go, here on out. And the next thing you know, well, maybe not. You know, there, there, there's something <laughs> yeah. going on here that indicates that its its future is is uh, uh, got an end point. But anyway, but but you know what I'm getting at. How, how, how do we, we uh, yeah. adjust when things move so fast. Yeah. I mean, that, that I think is one of the things that I'm really trying to, to wrap my, my own thinking around and practices. Um, I've I've just kind of a few things um, just by way of, you know, impression, I think re, you know, thinking about these Um, one, I think is that we do have to have a, we have to become communities in which these things are not attached to everything that we do. Um, I, for, I, for example, I mean, I have some suggestions. These aren't law. These are suggestions. I think for once, especially with theological education, that actually in community, even if you're using technology sometimes to, to broad a class or something like that, that you actually read, for example, classic works of Christianity, like take one text, like the, the old Oxford system of tutorials, and, and where you sit with one, one text, um, say Athanasius on the Incarnation, and you meet regularly and you go in, in at, at, together and work through what's going on here. You learn this process, not by just going online, getting a thing on Wikipedia, summing it up and... and um, but actually working through together in community these ideas, um, there's a there's a certain there's a certain gain. It doesn't mean you can't go back and use your computer to do more research. What it's saying is we need to learn how not to make everything, um, uh, you know, th- this kind of um, this kind of that's just that's a learning example. Um, but I think the same thing is we're going to have to learn and to to practice communal kind. Of of relationships in a sense, um, COVID has really uh, become an excuse to detach people. I think more and make them more um, virtually uh, related, um, and I think their practice is going to have to go against that grain um, because because I think the losses and uh, are, are too huge. I mean, you're seeing just in the, the, the impact of younger children, for example, the suicide rates, the, um, the, the mental health issues. Obviously, technology is not filling that gap, right? Um, and, and so I think we have a head start because this is central to our faith, being a communing people, frequently meeting together and serving each other directly um, in many cases. So um, I think I think our practices and and the practices of learning that have have made us the practices of contemplation, the practices of doing things, um, cultivating virtues in community. I think th- these things are going to take time. They aren't going to be a quick fix, but they're going to create people that, in a generation and another generation, in the long haul, will be the kind that are able to carry this stuff. I think much more significantly positive than than where where the the others are going to go <laughs> i mean let's face it um yeah. it's it's heading well, you know, in a bad yeah. direction if not well we saw we saw with these uh uh just you know sort of the um uh, the the articles that were published by the wall street journal uh with the whistleblowers uh, at facebook facebook owns yeah. instagram uh, they knew that Instagram was was uh, harming 
teenage girls and they, uh, they were profiting and have been profiting, uh, uh, you know, on the, uh, this exploitation of young women, because, you know, the, the environment within say Instagram, because it's a kind of visual environment encourages a kind of, well, uh, self-disclosure, but also just, uh, salacious, yeah. uh, behavior in order to draw yeah. eyes to, uh, a particular influencer, but who's being influenced here, you know, the, the child or the, or the yeah. people, uh, yeah. who are, who are, uh, you know, attending to, to her self, uh, display. Uh, and this is kind of going on, you know, with very young, uh, people, I mean, people in their early teens, you know, these, these young women, and they, they, they were actually able to, uh, to note how this was not just exploitive, but also damaging psychologically to these girls, but they did, they kept doing it anyway. Yeah. Now th this brings up something I've been thinking about ever since you brought up Tolkien a few minutes ago. Uh, I am, well, by the time this is up, it will be passed, but I'm speaking at a Tolkien conference coming up. And my first talk is going to be on, um, on fairy stories. And so I've been going through that in a lot more detail lately. One of the things that's interesting is that he says that you should reserve the magic specifically for the work of a magician. Hmm. It shouldn't be just sort of a general term. If you think about uh, Sam talking to Galadriel, Galadriel doesn't understand what he means by magic because it seems to be used for both what the elves do and the deceits of the enemy. Hmm. Yeah, but so he, he thinks it should be reserved for what a magician does. And he defines what a magician does as seeking power, seeking domination, seeking to control things or people. Hmm. And historically, that understanding of magic has always pretty much, especially when it involves other people's wills, it's always been understood as black magic, as evil. Mm -hmm. So when Tolkien uses the word magic, aside from at the beginning of it where he's using it in a more general sense, when he's using it in what he understands the sense of the word to mean, it's evil because it's all about controlling things or people, dominating things or people. Where that gets interesting is where it intersects with technology. Right. Because Tolkien wasn't a big fan of high-tech stuff. Yeah. Right. yeah. Because what does high-tech stuff do? It, it consists of controlling things or people, especially social media. Yeah, that reminds me of the, that episode in which uh, Gandalf is recounting for the White Council, not the White Council, but the, the Council of Elrod, uh, his encounter with uh, Saruman when Saruman... Uh, to imprisons him. And there's a, in the course of that conversation, Saruman says that she, he is no longer Saruman the white. He's now Saruman of many colors. He spins around and, you know, his, he's got kind of a rainbow kind of, uh, uh, effect with, with regard to his robes. And, uh, you know, Gandalf quips that he liked white better and so forth. But, uh, in the course of the conversation, uh, Saruman tellingly says that the white light can be broken we know that when you break light with a prism, that you create this spectrum, which is what Gandalf is observing with now with the robes of Saruman. And then Gandalf says, he who had breaks a thing in order to understand it has departed from the path of wisdom or to, uh, broken a thing to know it has departed yeah. from the path of wisdom. Now, I think it's pretty evident or pretty clear that uh, this, is a, this is an allusion to Newton's optics experiments. And when we think about that and how this all ties together with tech, with technology and power, I think it's, it's worth noting that connection that, that Tolkien's making. But also, I think that, that we live in a world in which uh, power is suffused throughout it, but the power is directed toward given ends. So these given ends, you know, we're thinking teleologically now, in order for us to acquire raw power, to achieve the ends that we desire, we have to separate the powers from the given ends, uh, and thereby yes. uh, we are able to That's use right. that power to achieve the ends that we desire. So uh, this is one of the reasons. That's exactly why think, what's that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the reasons why tele teleology is anathema to many scientists. They they know that if they if they concede given ends 
then we can't uh, uh, can't justify the quest for power like we've justified in the past. And that's why I think virtue and and classic wisdom, much less the Christian understanding with with true sanctification at its heart, are so key because they are internal patternizations of ends and relating to them the right way. Um, our appetites are related to true ends the right way. Whereas when you break um, material creation or or you can you know you develop it in ways that rips it from the, the their ordained ends um then then the appetites um are oriented to them in the wrong way as as basically putting our own final causes onto them our own purposes onto them and what happens to the virtue well it's not cultivated because it doesn't have to order itself towards anything doesn't have to order its loves it basically can make those things serve it and that's what we see when it gets like big tech and powers you have a powerful set of people um making everyone else and this was the big fear of people like Elul and tolkien and and others is that you you create this this monster um to which um, we're controlled by it um and and there is this uh this immense evil that that is the byproduct of that and and we're seeing it i think everywhere and i i think that's why the a re- restoration of teleological thinking is so important for for christians um and we have to get over this this uh, voluntarism that is just um so uh, i think perverted a true christian understanding but also um cultivating that wisdom um, biblical wisdom and 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 the the wisdom of reflecting on biblical reasoning as it applies to um, these created purposes is is very central and of course the virtues. Yeah, right. Um, right. By the way, uh, for some of our listeners, we might need to define teleological and voluntarism. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll do teleological. Things have a natural end. They have a purpose. Um, and their teleology refers to something, well, literally its end, but its purpose. What's it there for? What is it designed to do? What is it, what it, what, what's it about? When, when taken to, when used properly, what is the result? Yeah. You know, that would be a way of looking at teleology. Right. And, and, and so what you can do is you can tend to have fights within Christianity about how much of that teleology we're able to see with our natural reason. But nevertheless, um, you know, it does require, I mean, even for Plato, it requires moral conversion to be able to see those higher ends that are, that are in nature. But you do see certain ends and you discern them. Um, they're there. Um, voluntarism makes that, that natural purposes arbitrary because they're not grounded in the wisdom of God. They're grounded in an arbitrary act of God. It's a different conception of God that enters into the picture. Um, a lot of times, I mean, it comes out of, we talked about this a long time ago, a lot of times the influence of Islam and its emphasis on Allah's will and its impact through Maimonides and the debates that Christians were having with them, it slid into Christian thinking through Averroes, Avicenna, and and so this started to take on the, the emphasis on God's, you know, in the debates, even between God's uh, hidden will and and uh, revealed will. We're already taking steps in that direction, um, whereas classically the Christian understanding of God's wisdom, the mind of God and the will of God are the very essence of God. They're not two two things that are that, that can be broken apart here. The mind serves the will. And so God doesn't have any wisdom that he infuses the creation with just God's absolutely free will, undetermined by anything, not even God's wisdom. And so that was a, that it developed a notion of just the imposition of an arbitrary will onto creation. And so if God willed it one day, God could unwill it another. And it creates a very insecure view of 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 uh purposes and ends in creation so so they can be manipulated well think of ourselves made in the image of of god when god is an arbitrary imposer of will well guess what that means for human creatures in that view if we're made in god's image 
we can impose our will on the creation because we're basically um, just us, you know, di- uh, you know, an image bearer of that that arbitrary will, and we can impose it for our purposes because they're not governed by any higher wisdom or truth. I don't know if that's so. The, the ends are created. <laughs> so involuntarism, the it comes from the Latin voluntas, meaning will. So in in uh, that case, there is no natural end for things. There is no natural purpose. Whatever its purpose is what we will it to be. Right. And that is based on an understanding of God as well. At a very practical level, it affects uh, the way uh, authority is exercised in human institutions. So, you know, you made an important connection there, Tom, between, you know, if this is the way it works for God, if we're made in his image, that's the way it works for us, too. So now uh, we have these yeah. commands, which uh, are, are divine commands that express the divine will. And it's uh, almost impious to, to ask the reasoning behind the, 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 you know, the commands. <laughs> this is something you brought out earlier, Glenn. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, 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 you're just supposed to like uh, the charge of the light brigade. You know, ours is not to reason why ours is what to do and die. <laughs> we just go. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. So what, what, and how does that affect, you know, human institutions? Well, instead of those in authority studying, uh, the given ends of things and shepherding them and serving those ends and helping those ends to, uh, be, you know, achieved, uh, the various components or parties in an institution are viewed as just kind of mechanistically, you know, mechanisms, cogs in some kind of machine that can be interchanged. Uh, so it doesn't really matter, uh, what the natural ends of a human being are, or a man is, or a woman or what have you. It's just simply, you know, we, we, we've created this, this arbitrary system that seems to work, uh, on paper (laughs) then, and therefore, you know, it needs to work in, 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 you know, in reality. And, and consequently, we're just going to impose this upon you. And, um, if you don't comply, well, Tough noogies, you know. It's, it's you're going to pay a price for that. Uh, but in an early, in an older understanding of of you know the uses of, of human authority, human authority is uh, seen as a, a it's kind of a regency in the sense that you know we're viceroys. We we uh, are beneath a higher authority who have who has a. Uh, uh, re, you know, you know, created a world with given ends, and there are reasons that these ends are good, and we work with those ends. We don't try to, we don't ignore them. We don't, uh, and it, you know, it, it, it can be just as practical as, uh, say, you know, uh, a boss or a, or a father, uh, you know, uh, you know, attending to. The, the given ends of the people in his un, under his uh, uh, you know oversight, and if that's the case, then those in authority also recognize they have limits. There are limits to what I can do, and these limits are not just simply the limits that are imposed on me by the government, or just the physical limitations of you know the natural laws that we ha- we all have to. Uh, you know, acknowledge like the law of gravity or what have you, but there is a just that there's just just the the fact that there are given ends that people are are made for, and I can't violate those ends. Anyway, I hope you're still with us, Tom. I see Tom has disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you're yeah, you're still there, but, but it, you just but you just can't see because, it. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny because your yours is out on my end, and I can see myself. So it's very. This is very strange. <laughs> it's, pro- it's probably the speed. The speed of my internet is not keeping up with. The <laughs> um, um, you can hear me, okay? We hear you fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, so I think the, what you begin to see. I mean, you, as we see uh, voluntarism play out, as we've talked about in a lot of episodes, is what has given us these conditions. Uh, uh, politics is a great point because what you do end up seeing. Um, in in a context influenced by this kind of voluntarism, um, is is this imposition of a political will as if it you know as 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 if it doesn't have to give reasons for, or or give an account for 
for um, it just it just basically arbitrarily, um, you know, pursues what it wants to pursue as it gets a certain kind of power over people. Um, I, re I remember years ago, Francis Schaeffer talking about this in his Christian Manifesto. And when he talked about the way in which once Lex Rex goes, law as as understood in a Judeo-Christian um, uh, frame, um, that then law is is, you know, not rooted any longer in in that that moral ground and therefore becomes loosened and arbitrary and it becomes something that either is imposed by a dictator or a a group of elites that are going to impose now what that what that um, law is going to look like now that it's rooted in the will of the powerful rather than the uh the you know the the wisdom of god and so i think that's what we we are really seeing well, and we can take that back to our original theme of technology. That's also what we're seeing increasingly with communication technology, um, with, the, with um, again, uh, social media, uh, social networks, all of those kinds of things. What we're seeing is a raw exercise of power yeah. um, in those things to determine what is and is not considered acceptable to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that I think that that gets into a, a, a you know a set of things related to this is um, the way in which truth becomes a victim in the 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 world that is driven by technological grounded communication, um, and what is the place of being community of truth, speakers of truth, committed to truth. In a at a time when it is being suppressed, um, uh, basically uh, to the point where it's, in some platforms you can't post anything that contradicts their particular privileged interpretation. So you're silenced, you're eliminated, you're canceled, um, and so that no longer becomes a a vehicle for you. I mean, I think this happened to our, our friends at Cross Politic with um, YouTube. As it happened to them there. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, so, we, I mean, in here, here, this is a whole, mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. We should probably uh, bring this in for a landing here pretty quick. Um, we're getting to that time. And, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I don't, I didn't mean to cut you off, Tom. I know you were, you know, uh, you know, addressing something that was important. Go ahead. I'm sorry for doing that. Yeah, la the, I think the la last point on, on this is is that there is a, I think a, a pressing, um, pressing issue that the church is facing is that it is going to be marginalized um, in terms of of big tech and and social media and this kind of communications. And I know a lot of wanting to develop um, counter forums and the like, which I think are very wise steps. Um, but we need we we shouldn't eliminate the things we talked about, especially in terms of truth being communities of truth, because people are going to need them very shortly, um, even if they're silenced and marginalized. Um, truth truth is something we're going to find out is probably the most fundamental thing that matters. It's the bread. It's more important than than bread itself, right? Every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Right. Right. Yeah, this reminds me of Plato's uh, concerns related to, you know, a, a technology that we take for granted, which is writing. You know, he uh, he expressed some um, yeah. uh, concerns about how the, the very act of writing, uh, you know, sort of mm -hmm. provides its own set of challenges or problems when it comes to this matter of truth. So this this is a this is a discussion that goes back a long, long way. And that's not to say we ought and we ought to be illiterate. Uh, it's just saying that, you know, every form of technology uh, has its own dangers and we should be aware of those. Anyway, well, we really appreciate you listening to the Theology Podcast. It's uh, really gratifying for us when people communicate with us and let, them, let us know they've been listening in. Uh, there are folks who give to the show on a regular basis, and we are very grateful for the, for those folks. There are expenses uh, that we incur, and those gifts that people give to us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network when they become a member of the, of the network and designate the podcast as their 
show of choice. Uh, we we appreciate uh, you folks. There are folks who give to us in other other ways through Anchor podcasts or through even through our own website. So uh, if you're one of those folks, again, thank you very much. Another thing is people have uh, given us some nice ratings on you know different uh, platforms. Uh, there are, of course, uh, Apple Podcasts uh, that uh, you know we have a presence uh, at, and uh, I've noticed that there have been uh, you know a growing number of five star reviews there. So if you uh, have a moment after you've listened to this show and you can get to Apple Podcasts and you, you feel inclined to give us a five star rating, please do so. If you don't want to give us five stars, what are you doing going to Apple Podcasts and bothering us? <laughs> anyway, that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> more to the point, why are you sitting here listening to us for an hour? <laughs> that's right. How did you get all the way to the end of the show? <laughs> but uh, again, thanks so much uh, for listening in. And uh, we'll uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.